Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good afternoon and welcome to the forum here at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm Carolyn Gregoire, Associate Lifestyle Editor of the Huffington Post, and I'll be moderating our conversation today about the causes and impacts of stress. This conversation is presented by the Forum for Public Health here at Harvard and the Huffington Post. Over 70% of Americans report experiencing physical and psychological symptoms of stress, and one in three Americans says that they live with extreme stress. Unfortunately, according to a recent Stress in America survey, Americans don't have a significant gap between what they want from the healthcare system and what they're actually receiving. Sustained over time, stress can undermine our health in deadly and very serious ways. Stress can damage not only our health, but also our lifestyles, our well-being, careers, relationships, and families. It can curb productivity and creativity, and it's a risk factor in the development of depression and anxiety. An extensive body of research has also found evidence of the role of stress in the, the, the development of a number of chronic diseases. Ariana Huffington, the editor-in-chief and founder of the Huffington Post, has called 2013 the year that we prioritize beating stress. We have united all of the HuffPost lifestyle sites under the theme of less stress, more living, and I've been working closely with the stress management content. So I'm thrilled to be here um, with our experts on stress management and mindfulness who have been really pioneering in these fields. In today's forum event, our panel of experts will examine what we know about stress, as well as the role social status plays in exacerbating or mitigating these effects. Our panelists will also explore how healthy lifestyles in which positive well-being, mindfulness, exercise, and nutrition can contribute to a less stressful lifestyle. So first, I would like to introduce all of our panelists. Um, to my right is Alan Langer. Ellen Langer is a professor of psychology and author of Mindfulness and Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility. A pioneer in the field of mindfulness research, Dr. Langer is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and three Distinguished Scientist Awards, the World Congress Award, NYU Alumni Award, and many others. She's authored 11 books and over 200 research articles on the illusion of control, perceived control, stress, successful aging, and more. Her research has shown that actually noticing new things can actually contribute to well-being, health, and competence. Next to Ellen, we have Dr. Laura Kubzanski, Associate Professor of Social and Behavioral Sciences. Her work focuses on psychological and social factors in health, with a focus on the role of stress and emotion in cardiovascular disease and healthy aging. Her work has demonstrated that emotions may play an important role in the development of a number of disease outcomes, including cardiovascular disease, lung function decline, and cancer. Um, next to Dr. Kubzanski, we have Dr. David Eisenberg. He's the Associate Professor in the Department of Nutrition here at Harvard, and he is the Executive Vice, Vice President for Health, Education, and Research at the Samuli Institute. He's also the founder of Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives, a conference that aims to educate doctors on the importance of good nutrition and the links between diet and disease. Dr. Eisenberg will discuss how poor dietary conditions can contribute to stress and how, as a clinician, he's seen personal health affected by stress. And over um, on the left, we have Lillian Chung, who is the creator and editorial director of Nutrition Source at the Harvard School of Public Health and the co-founder of, sorry, co-author of Savor Mindful Eating, Mindful Life. She's a practitioner of mindfulness and mindful eating. And her work focuses on the translation of science-based recommendations into public health communications and programs to contribute to healthy lifestyles and chronic disease prevention. 
So we'll begin with some introductory comments from our panelists on the causes and impacts of stress. We'll go into some questions from our studio audience here in Boston and also our viewers on the web. And then we will, the second half of our conversation will focus on stress management. So to start, um, I'd like to turn to Ellen. What, what is stress? What are some of the causes of stress and the parameters of the problem? Okay, well, uh, when we feel that we can't control things and that those things that we can't control are going to have a very negative impact on us, we react. And um, there's, I guess it was Ovid quite some time ago who said, when the mind is ill at ease, the body is affected, which is of course a gross understatement, that every system in the body is thrown off. Uh, disease, as you mentioned, some of them, if you have the, um, uh, the cardiac system, we have uh, heart attacks, angina, the respiratory system, you can get asthma, the um, uh, digestive system, you have ulcers and um, uh, what else? Irritable bowel syndrome, and that's just on the surface. The immune system is uh, compromised. So basically that when you're stressed, all of your resources uh, go to deal with the stress and are not available to promote healthy living. And for me, the bottom line to a great deal of this stress is our mindlessness. And um, that I think that uh, after 40 years of research on this, I'm reasonably sure that most of us, much of the time, are mindless. We're not there, and we're not there to know we're not there. And we have an illusion of stability. So we're holding things still while things are changing. And what that means, in order to experience stress, you have to see that <coughs> there's um, an event that you believe will happen, and that if it happens, it's going to be terrible. And both of those are mindless. Uh, there are big stressors, things like loss of job, war, uh, death of a family member. But then what matters most to most of us are the daily hassles. And those are the things we have most control over. You know, um, as I was driving over here, um, the GPS system reminded me that um, if I'm driving and the person next to me says make a right and I don't make a right, havoc can break out. You're supposed to make and getting crazy and you have a GPS system that calmly says recalculating. <laughs> and, and there's a lesson we can take from that. We assume that life is such we have to feel um, this kind of stress that results in uh, an inability to concentrate, um, anxiety, we become um, irritable, angry at each other, and um, the larger part of that is unnecessary, I think. And so for me, mindfulness is the key. So <clears throat> one of the interesting things about stress is that it comes out of both what's happening in the environment and what's um, a part of the person, right? So if something seems particularly difficult, what, what resources do I have to manage it? And in fact, when we think about why stress might be linked to health, Stress evolved as a mechanism for dealing with short-term crises. So I'm trying to cross the street and I see a car coming at me really quickly and I need to mobilize really fast. I need to be able to, to it, you know, behave in a way that's gonna help me get out of the way. So that's a very effective system for the short-term. Um, and the thinking about why it may uh, be problematic for health is that when you reactivate the system over and over and over again with maybe not enough respite and not enough chances to kind of come back down and restore, then there's what we call physiologic wear and tear, which ultimately can damage some of the biological systems and lead to disease initiation. 
Um, and then there are two pathways by which people think this can happen. One is either because feeling stressed and overwhelmed may make it harder to engage in behaviors that are healthy for us. So, you know, if I'm feeling stressed, I may not feel like going out and exercising. It's easier to eat that big chocolate chip muffin. Um, and then the other pathway is biological. So when I um, experience a sense of stress, there's a, a release of what we call stress hormones that flood the body and alter all kinds of biological systems when they're in play for a long period of time. So a lot of the research, with the idea that stress influences health has been around for a really long time. It's not new, but I would say that in the last couple of decades, the evidence for how and why it's linked to health has gotten increasingly better. Some of the best evidence is in relation to heart disease. So there are many studies now that suggest that people with very high levels of stress are at uh, more than two times the risk of developing heart disease relative to people who are at lower levels of stress. And this risk is not that different from the risk that's conferred by cigarette smoking. It holds when you take account of um, you know, uh, family history of health and some other factors. And while the evidence is not absolutely conclusive, it's very, very suggestive um, and, and says that we should take it quite seriously. The other thing that's interesting about stress is that it is um, not distributed equally throughout society. So people who have less power and fewer resources and fewer opportunities are more likely to both face many situations that feel very, very demanding and have fewer opportunities to develop the tools that will allow them to manage those situations. And so what we find is that people with less income, less education, lower socioeconomic status um, tend to report higher levels of stress. And in fact, we know that socioeconomic status is associated with health, whereby lower socioeconomic status is associated with worse health. And one of the ideas for why this might happen is because of the higher levels of stress that are induced by these more difficult circumstances. And in fact, there's been a really interesting finding coming out that suggests that um, when kids live in these very difficult social circumstances with high levels of stress where there's a lot of chaos in the household or in the neighborhood, it actually alters their stress biology, their ability to respond to stress, to develop the coping capacities and even their brain architecture so that they are subsequently more susceptible to stress and also to, to, to the health outcomes that may result from that much, much later in life. So one of the goals of research on this topic is to try to figure out what can we do to help people with this, to maybe help kids develop better coping capacities, help adults manage these things, um, how can we interrupt the link between stress and health? Um, I'm David Eisenberg. I've been asked to participate in the panel wearing three different hats. Uh, first, I'm a clinician by training, trained in internal medicine and primary care. And my years of taking care of patients have shown me, without a doubt, that every symptom, every disease is amplified by stress. And more often than not, people simply don't have a clue that it's coming, how to manage it. I think Ellen's terms of mindless living is applicable, particularly in the disease population. So if somebody has a strain or a sprain or a break or a musculoskeletal problem, it's always worse. If they have a neurologic problem or a headache, it's always worse. If they have some physiologic problems, it's always worse. So the relationship between stress and biology is clear, and to every clinician, it is well known. Second, I'm a student of Asian medicine and culture. I was sent to China in the 70s to study herbal medicine, meditation, tai chi, uh, hands-on manipulation. Some of these things were to treat 
non-stress related diseases, many of them, the sort of hidden mainstream of complementary alternative medicine in our culture, chiropractic, yoga, tai chi, meditation are used by a third or more of Americans and globally probably by half the planet. And many of these techniques that are age old are really oriented towards bringing us back to being present and mindful and that's why they persist. So I've been a student of complementary Asian integrative medicine for 40 years. But the reason I'm here is mainly because of my third hat. I direct this unusual course that brings together nutrition scientists, medical experts, registered dietitians, and chefs to try to instruct people we know and the medical establishment, the practitioners, on how to make better choices about food and living more healthfully because we all know we have an obesity and diabetes problem which in large part is being amplified by stress yet again. I suspect everybody in the room knows without a literature base that we eat less thoughtfully when we are stressed and yet when we are in an exercise pattern and in a good place emotionally we make better choices. So thus was born this conference, Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives, that was mentioned, that's really uh, co-sponsored by the Harvard School of Public Health and the Culinary Institute of America to instruct the medical establishment on how they can change their own behaviors so they in turn are more apt to change the behaviors of the patients they serve. And the last thing I'll say is in that conference that brings together nutrition experts meditation experts, exercise experts. The modalities are not just the science of nutrition or even the art of cooking healthy, delicious, quick, affordable, great food. We also bring in the, mo the notion of movement, which has a great stress management aspect. To anybody who exercises, you know this. It's a great stress reducer. We bring in mindfulness meditation, which I will turn over in a moment to my colleague Lillian Chung. Because without being mindful about the foods we pick and how we cook them and how we eat them, as Michael Pollan says, the banquet is in the first bite. Most people in current society eat mindlessly. They're watching television, they're reading a paper, they're in deep discussion, but they're not present with their food, let alone the amount of food that's going in. So our approach to stress and its relationship to food has to include the science, exercise, a lot of mindfulness, and how to teach people who are stuck to make a difference. So those are the frames of reference I'll bring to the discussion. And in terms of mindfulness and its role, let me share that now with Lillian. Thank you. Mindfulness was not in my vocabulary as training in my career. So how did it happen that I end up practicing mindfulness? The year was 1997. I was totally spent juggling between family, career. I'm one of the statistics that you talked about, the 70%. And uh, my son, my oldest one, a teenager, came home one day yeah, from middle school and was trying to share with me her, his challenges at school. And I heard him say to me, knock, knock. Mommy, are you there? It woke me up. It pierced my heart. How can I be so mindless? 
and I need to change my life. And then around that time, a mailer came to my home talking about a mindfulness retreat, opening the doors to healing and transformation in Key West. I said, I better go. <laughs> so I went there. To my shock, over 900 people. Who were they? Almost all psychotherapists, social worker, and psychologists. They were learning how to practice mindfulness with Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who is well famous. And there, within the week, what happened to me was, by the third day, I have some bliss, glimpses of bliss. At the end of the retreat, I declared to my husband that I touched nirvana. And Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh is a great teacher. He said, many of you would have touched some peace in this retreat. But if you don't go home and continue to practice, you're going to lose it all. So knowing is only the first step. Practice is the key. Fast forward back to the School of Public Health. And what I realized is that as we dwell into ways to manage and control the obesity epidemic, not only Americans eating mindlessly, and Brian Wensick has, and Dr. Brian Wensick and Cornell has done a lot of work in that, we are facing a very toxic food environment that is bombarding our senses all the time, getting us to condition overeating. The first book by Dr. Kelly Brunell, Food Fight, talking about toxicity in the food environment. Then we have Dr. David Kessler, a former FDA commissioner, who talks about the fact that there is a lot of data within the food industry that really understand how to condition us to eat all the time. And his book was End of Overeating. Fast forward, recently in the New York Times Magazine, we have Michael Moss article, again addressing the fact that the food industry knew how to get us hooked and get us craving for these foods that are high in fat, salt and sugar, and creating a condition that is hooking our brain that we will feel better, but we cannot stop. We override our satiety. So with that understanding, I thought it's so important to think out of the box in the traditional way of working with this epidemic. And having David around is wonderful because he understands mindfulness. And so I took a big leap forward trying to integrate the science together with a practice that is over 2,500 years to try to get the best that together so that we all can have a glimpse of what <coughs> bliss is about, but not the bliss state that the food industry wants us to be <laughs> by eating. And it's really just through three simple things routines. Mindful breathing, mindful eating, and mindful movements. And it is quite profound. And all we did in the retreat was learning how to walk mindfully, 
how to eat mindfully and how to breathe mindfully. Well, thank you all so much for being here. It's wonderful that we have such a variety of perspectives and I would love to turn it over to our studio audience if you have any questions for any of our panelists. Yes. That was wonderful. That was interesting on so many levels. Um, I have a question. I write a blog called Plan B Nation about the psychological impact of the Great Recession. And many people in our culture, as I'm sure you all know, are dealing with prolonged stress due to very serious ongoing issues, job loss, the risk of job loss, financial troubles. And to some extent, it seems to me that stress is sort of a structural issue at this point. And I was wondering if any of you have any thoughts on structural solutions, things that the broader culture can do. And in particular, I'm thinking of any insights from behavioral economics, if people can be nudged um, in the direction. Um, so I'd be interested in anyone's thoughts on that. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that, <coughs> although I'll try to you know, limit them a little bit. So it's a great question because I think one of the issues that comes up a lot with stress is it feels like it's a very individual, very personal experience, which it, it is at one level. And often the solutions are very individually based and very personal, which can be very, very useful, right? So we want something that's gonna help us in the moment and I have most control over sort of what I am doing, you know, in, in many ways. But it's always good to remember that it's the transaction between the person and the environment and so that there is another way to try to manage um, what's happening in terms of stress by thinking about other ways of kind of intervening. And so, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about is, well, there may be institutional um, you know, things that you could do that would reduce stress that we don't necessarily think of as having an effect on health per se or having an effect on stress per se but are implemented for other reasons but for example there's lots of work family policies that um, workplaces could think about that mm -hmm. would reduce the exposure that people would have to these very challenging circumstances where they feel like they just can't cope because it gives them essentially alternatives or more resources for coping or there's been some discussion about changing the structure of employee um, the, the way people have to work so that they have a greater sense of control over their work so that even if it's a very demanding job they've also got more control over what they have to do. So there are um, institutional level um, things that people could do to try to think about well what are the circumstances that really put people in a place where they begin to feel totally overwhelmed by what they can do and it may be really hard to you know, implement some of these wonderful strategies, but I may be in a place where that just feels impossible or I don't have access to, you know, the, uh, the food or the time to cook or wh whatever it may be. There are also higher level policy um, kinds of, of uh, interventions that people could think about. So, for instance, um, ways to reduce the chaos in various neighborhoods and you know again a lot of these a lot of these kinds of ideas are not typically thought of as um, being health related they come up in other domains of policy but in fact we could think more broadly about how they may impact individuals and impact their health so things about housing and housing stock and the kinds of resources that people have available sort of the social um, welfare nets that are available to people so that in times when the economy has you know collapsed people are not absolutely left on their own and said well good luck to you i hope it works for you kind of thing we have some systems in place that essentially reduce that sense of how how could i possibly manage this on my own so i think it's a great question because i think we often tend to feel like somehow if only i could just 
think a little more clearly about this. I would do this better. But there are real situational constraints, and everything happens in a context. And so it may be, in some ways, there are lots of ways to nudge the context so that people have more opportunities to do a better job kind of managing the One part of the um, social system that Laura didn't mention is our schools. And that right now that our schools teach people to be mindless. You know, I mean, they do, you know, that you get your A's, and I got plenty of them, by memorizing things context-independent. And so that what happens is you end up bringing people up into a world where they're sure there are right answers, they know they don't have them, that itself sets them up to be stressful. They end up less uh, mindful, less able to um, understand, to come up with mindful solutions to problems because they haven't been taught that um, in, in the early years. I mean, the education should be changed at each level. And uh, so then we would avoid some of the problems that we, that we now have. One arena that I'm thinking of is in companies. Uh, many companies have started to, through the, most of them, the human resources uh, branch, aware of the fact that the employees are quite stressed. Especially in the West Coast, uh, and I was invited along with Sam Master Tignahan to Google for a day of mindfulness. And it was really quite an eye opener because Google is so progressive in terms of thinking about emotional intelligence. They have a program called Search uh, Inside Yourself that has been implemented for a while. And they're very open to mindful eating because they give really wonderful food. So, um, <laughs> and you can be eating a lot of it, it's free. So mindful eating is crucial to them. And another trend that I can think of is health coaching. Health coaches are becoming more and more popular in companies. And one of the key, um, I would say, a tool that health coaches use is the practice of mindfulness, the skills that they themselves have to embody, as well as helping their clients. So I do see a lot on the horizon that is increasing awareness to be of service to the greater good that way. In terms of behavior economics, I think that whole area, even within our Harvard University, we have in the Harvard Business School researchers working on it. And there is definitely very important to look at how we can get people to eat more mindfully because the way we put the meals together to make the uh, dishes much more attractive and putting it somewhere that they can see because it's lit. And so there is a lot of work that is going on. It's very exciting. I have a slight disagreement. Are we at the stage where we can disagree with each other? Add to it. You know, that I think that, you know, yes, people should engage in mindful eating. They should engage in mindful movement, mindful speaking, mindful listening. And that I think rather than, and I applaud those programs, but I think rather than pick each activity and teach people how to mindfully engage that activity, we need to teach people how to be mindful in general so that whatever they're doing, I mean, we've done so many studies where we take people, we teach them to be mindful, and at some point we'll discuss mindfulness as I study it. 
although I did work on meditation back in the 70s, the mindfulness that um, I've looked at is basically mindfulness without meditation. Um, and that we, in all different environments, we um, instruct people, get people to be more mindful, and we find improvements in um, virtually everything, not just their health and a decrease in stress, but an increase in um, competence, a decrease in accidents, an increase in health, longevity, vision improvements we have, weight loss, this is without any focus on um, what they're eating in particular. They become more charismatic, better leaders, nicer people. You know, so that, um, you know, so, and then when you, so if you can achieve that, then those red plates, you know, for me personally, if you give me a big plate, yes, I'm going to put more food on it than a small plate. Um, I don't know if we gave the Dalai Lama different size plates, for argument's sake, whether that would affect the amount that's being eaten. So, two different solutions, and they're not mutually exclusive. Actually, Ellen, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the whole uh, notion of mindfulness is about being in the moment, being open and curious, and using a beginner's mind. However, for a lot of people, this is so mystical. How do you go about it? So we need some toolbox to help them, to come back to themselves. In the modern age of living, it's multitasking, autopilot. You gotta snap them out of it. And some of these ways of moving around, eating, helps them to refocus and to be in touch with themselves, their feelings, their body sensations, what they're thinking and all that's around the world. We'll take one more question from the audience. Yes. It seems to me that there um, seem to be two almost opposing um, visions. Uh, one is very individually oriented and, and this notion of mindfulness, which I, I must admit I support as a practitioner of Vipassana. There's something w very wonderful about it. On the other side, there seems to be an, an emphasis on social action from the policy perspective, like behavioral economics, which can be a bit manipulative. And perhaps from the public health perspective, we should uh, explore and consider a middle path. I mean, is there some mechanism of combining the two and thinking about mindful collective action um, that really um, engages people in the issue of observing their environment and taking action to change their environment on a collective community organizing basis? Because I hate to think of the either or, the individual action which really sometimes could wreak a victim blaming ideology and the social action which can sometimes reek of a manipulative um, action. And where is that middle ground um, for collectivity, for action together? I, I don't see them as um, in opposition to each other, although one can attempt to change you know, in either, uh, at either level. Uh, I think that when you have people at the individual level being more mindful, they're less stressed, they're more compassionate, uh, they're less evaluative, they're going to be less violent, they're going to be less susceptible to some of the tricks, as you, as you put it before. And that will result in the group that they're in behaving differently, um, it would be less competitive, again, leading to less stress. You know, we have the idea that there are um, clear rights and wrongs which, uh, and right ways of doing things, um, as you have in many businesses, um, that that makes people afraid 
because they don't know what the right answer is. Um, and they're afraid to admit that they did something that uh, um, perhaps led to some problem. And so you have a, a system that's closed rather than that's open where people are sharing information. And so there are ways of changing things on the individual level that lead, and it can start either way. You know, I, as the CEO, can decide to open things up and have more, teach people how to have more respect for each other. Um, and I can also start with the individuals and have them have more respect for each other, and then the, the, the company will change. Some of it sounds sort of soft and pie in the sky, but um, I, don't think it, I don't think it is. I think that what people don't realize is many of the patterns of behavior in which they engage are the very things that are making them miserable. You know, and that this, uh, I have to win, I have to get there fast, I have to get there first, that mentality makes it so that even when you get there, you don't value where you've gotten to. So that um, I think realizing that there are advantages to many of the things that we're not sure that we want, you know, that uh, part of the reason people become sick or stay sick, and I'm not talking about uh, chronic illnesses, but it's nice to take a, a breather from the, the stresses of the day, to sit at home and eat those chocolate chip muffins and watch television or something and just feel at peace. And that uh, what we need to do is arrange it so that that feeling can arise without um, having to pull out of society. You know, that we have to create our social groups so that they're actually supportive of us. And we can do that in part by being less evaluative. And we become less evaluative when we understand behavior from multiple perspectives. So you see this thing that seems awful from another perspective is not. Now you dislike me because I'm impulsive, but if you were uh, more mindful in noticing my behavior from my perspective, you'd see I was spontaneous. And then you no longer dislike <laughs> me. And if you thought, why am I so wishy-washy? And then you recognize, well, from another perspective, I'm open-minded, flexible, mm -hmm. and so on with everything that we call each other. And so then once we have this different vocabulary, a way of respecting each other, everything falls into a different place. And we end up with the social support that the literature is very clear on, um, basically helping our, uh, lower our stress level. I don't think stress will ever go away. I think there's a good chance that our children and our children's children will actually have to cope with even more stress because of the perpetual overstimulation and connections to technology, et cetera. So I want to just put out a rhetorical question. What should mental health centers of the future look like? And we would be derelict if we didn't also include, you know, the conventional psychopharmacology, talk therapy, as well as movement, and to a further extent, health coaching, exercise. But it's an interesting question. Two generations from now, when there is even more collective stress, what should that portfolio of options look like? Because if we don't envision it now and showcase that there is no one way to address stress, either at the individual level or at the community or corporate worksite level or at the larger social level, if we stay in those narrow silos, we will really limit the possibility of inventing a better delivery model. And I think it's all of these things. So uh, I don't think any of these are mutually exclusive concepts. 
but we're talking about stress, and I think it's going to get more challenging, and we have to invent these models of the future, well, if you agree. I, I am the, the oddball here, I guess. So for me, I think one of the big problems in society is that everybody takes stress, a certain level of stress, as the baseline, but that's sort of normal. And so we don't question things until it gets even beyond that point. And I think that we should set up um, a support system and, um, uh, and all of the things that you rightly say, David. But I also think that we should get people on the individual level um, and um, in schools and in businesses to question. You know, when I was growing up, people had always said to me, why are you smiling? And I, and I pulled back, you know, finally. You know, now I say, why aren't you smiling? You know, so it's sort of to change the norm. Well, also just to put a sort of public health prevention orientation, I think, you know, there are lots of ways of thinking about sort of how we're going to manage the issue and going forward and what should, what kinds of systems do we want to put into place. And I think a really um, interesting way to think about it is to think about it developmentally. So how do we get people or kids to a point as adults where they have these tools that they can bring to bear whether it's mindfulness or you know other tools that they're able to really implement that will adapt to the different situations because not one tool is going to work in every single situation and one of the interesting topics that's come up in the out of the stress research literature has been this notion about the importance of being able to self-regulate. So being able to focus attention when you need to, shift attention when you have to, regulate your emotions so that when something bad happens, you can kind of manage it and come back from it. And it is one of the major developmental milestones that kids have to meet. And this is, I think, what you were talking about with schools, where we could think about how to give kids uh, you know, more systematic capacity for being able to regulate so that as they become adults in these very different systems, they've got a set of tools, as well as thinking about what are the environments that we want to have that will uh, facilitate the ability to regulate and the ability to make different choices depending on what the you know, array of options are, because not every situation will be the same and not every tool will work in the same situation. So I think you know, if you think about it from a prevention orientation, then we should probably think really carefully about how do we hand these tools to kids so that when they become these adults facing all kinds of you know, challenges and choices, which are inevitable, you know, they have um, some mechanisms for kind of managing these. And William, with your work in mindfulness, how have you found, you know, educational methods? What has been helpful in teaching mindful eating, mindful movement, all of these things? I have not worked with kids per se, but there are some research going on in school-based work in mindfulness. I think um, Dr. Herbert Benson has started that. Um, there is a lot of interest to have mindfulness uh, in the schools to really help children manage their stress. Going back to the question in terms of the policy aspect, I just want to point out a very, very interesting and promising book for us. And that is A Mindful Nation, written by Tim Ryan. And he is a congressman in Ohio. He himself is a practitioner of mindfulness. And he sees the importance of having, you know, the government officials themselves, politicians, be much more mindful in everything they do. So I On think both the personal and, and, public and level. absolutely, and that's what. And there has been mindfulness retreats that Thich Nhat Hanh actually went to D.C. twice 
and did Congress uh, Mindfulness Days. So um, I think there is an openness about this type of practice. Do we have another question from online? online, so I just want to be able to fit in some of that. Um, here's one question from Jill from Muskegon County, Michigan. How do you convince your physician to take your concerns about stress seriously, like weight control? The topic is often ignored, or they tell you that you're overreacting. <laughs> well, what, I, uh, what I know in, in the research is about 40% of people who are stressed would overeat. So it's a quite a big number. And I think it's important um, to work with that and um, ask the, the primary care to refer to a dietitian in order to manage that type of eating and if it's a weight-related issue. Um, yes, I think we have a long way to go in um, convincing primary care physicians to have that modality in, in their offering. But some companies, healthcare companies, are opening up. And they really would like Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. They are very big on mindfulness. So the trend is changing. I think we'll see more. I think through no fault of their own, most trained physicians in this country have learned very little about nutrition and even less about its translation to giving advice to patients about food or their anxiety about food. It's not their fault. You know, the average number of hours spent by a medical student across all medical schools studying nutrition is 19 hours in four years. It's a scandal. And most of that is biochemistry. Furthermore, this conference that the Harvard School of Public Health and the Culinary Institute have created, which has been offered nine times, has sold out every year. Because physicians come realizing they're ill-equipped to sit before Jill and understand her predicament, and more importantly, have evidence-based, clinically relevant advice to help her. That's why they show up at the conference. I think we need a robust effort on the part of medical educators to realize that we can't graduate another generation of physicians who don't understand the translation of nutrition science into practical advice about food, cooking, exercise, mindfulness, behavioral optimization, health coaches. That's the portfolio. And it's relatively new, but we're trying. And we hope a lot of people pay attention. And I think the physician who is facing Jill is ill-equipped, and it's coming out through a nervous response of, I don't know. And that's what she's feeling. Well, I'm just going to say, I think there's also a related problem, which is that we don't, you know, we don't really know from a medical perspective what to do about stress. Stress is one of these terms that's out there. It's everywhere. You talk to anyone on the street, and they'll tell you, oh, yeah, I have so much stress. And you know, sometimes it ends up being a diagnosis of exclusion. Well, I can't find anything else, so I'll just tell you you're stressed. But there's not a very systematic approach to it medically. Um, and I think that's where you know, I'm hoping that the science will help as we get a better handle on kind of how these things work, the interrelationships between stress and behavior and health, we will be able to train people 
to actually manage it better. Whereas right now, I think what happens is you, if you happen to get a clinician who's very sympathetic to that notion, they will try to sort of address it, but there are still clinicians who will say, well, you know, that's, yeah, everyone has that, you know, that there's nothing I'm gonna be able to help you with that, you know, try to, you know, eat less kind of thing. So, so I think that's another sort of gap in both medical education and then just sort of more broadly in terms of what should we do about it? We all talk about it, but we need, we need a systematic approach to kind of managing it. Last reference I wanted to make. This is a very rich literature by a Professor Erica Frank, who's now in Vancouver, that says physicians who exercise advise their patients to exercise. Physicians who wear seat belts, physicians who wear sunscreen, physicians who check their lipids religiously, they advise their patients to do these things. I think if we could get more of the medical establishment, and not just physicians, but nurses, registered dietitians, allied health professionals, complementary alternative medicine docs to work, to really model. Once they understand the techniques, mindfulness, yoga, tai chi, you name it, they're much more well positioned to advise the patient on a set of options that might be relevant. Whereas if they know nothing about them because they've never experienced them, they simply can't. So I think we need both. I'm, I'm completely agreeing with you. But that's the toolbox. Thank you, that's, that's very helpful. Um, I know we only have about 10 minutes left, but shall I ask one more question? Because yeah, we have a live chat going on and a lot of people are participating. I thought this was an interesting question. How can technology help us reduce our stress and how does technology also add to stress? We're uh, doing some work now where um, we're creating, a, we have this new mindfulness app Mindfulness as I study it again, which at some point we should really um, clarify for people, but not right this second. And uh, basically, that when you're mind, well, I'm going to do it. <laughs> when you're mindful, um, what you're doing is, since you're in the present, you're actively noticing new things, that gives you an attention to variability by seeing change. And um, if you have an app, where let's say you think you're always depressed. Well, no one is always anything. And if you're depressed, you're not always depressed at the same level. And so if you had um, your phone call you, text you, or some gadget call you periodically and just check in, how are you feeling right now? Two things would happen. You'd come to see, gee, there are times you're not stressed. The second, when those times occur, it would lead to the question, well, why? And that would lead you to a search for a solution. That search itself would probably be mindful and would be good for your health. Um, and you might actually come up with a solution. There are apps about uh, healthy eating. Um, there's, um, if one is on their computers and they're um, being creative, mindful, um, that's going to be good for their health. There's a social network that, you know, uh, I have this words with friends that, you know, um, people who I, I didn't know I was such friends with <laughs> keep, you know, um, playing the game with me. And so there's a sense of a relationship that's easy to facilitate when you might be infirm. Um, it's not the, it's never the fault of the gadget of the technology uh, that we feel stressed. It's um, a thought that we impose on ourselves in using these gadgets. I have to be more proficient. I ha oh my God, the machine is not working at this moment. You know, my email is down. The world is going to fall apart because of it. But 
the machine is just not working for a brief time. As far as multitasking, no matter what it is you come up with, it is not in the activity that we experience stress. Multitasking can be fabulous. You're multitasking all the time. That right now you're, you know, right, okay, so I just moved around and I'm looking at you and I'm talking and I'm thinking of different things and I'm aware um, you know, that I don't want to move the microphone. And all of this is happening, but I call it by one name. I'm just being part of this podcast. You know, so that if you see yourself, well, let me explain this differently. Let's say uh, you're a student and you're doing your social studies homework and you're doing your history homework um, and you keep going back and forth and you can get yourself crazy thinking of yourself as multitasking. If you raise it a level of analysis and you see yourself as doing your homework, then you're not multitasking. Now, we have some research where we have people mindfully multitasking, and one task is actually um, enhancing the performance on the other task. So if you have rigid boundaries around these tasks, but they have nothing in common, and that you have to be expert at both of them and get them done immediately, yes, doing them both at the same time is going to be stressful. If you have a sense of that they're integrated in some way, um, and you relieve the time pressure, you know, um, you don't have to suffer with it. I agree with you, depending on circumstances. Sure. If we text and drive, it would not be good. No. It would be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends on the circumstance. Sure. No, I mean, you know, and if you were shooting yourself while you were texting, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's no argument that we can use, you know, uh, but it's not the texting. It's not the um, uh, computers, the gadgets that are causing the problem. I mean, you can have your, your uh, opportunities to text and you can have your opportunities to drive. You shouldn't be driving and eating, I would assume you would say, right? We don't want to ban cars yeah. or, you know. But it, it's so common as a problem in our society with well, texting and driving. Well, the reason it's common, yeah. No, it's because people don't realize that they don't have control. You know, so that when phones first came out, cell phones, my guess, and I think there's data from, um, the Netherlands, but I'm not sure, that um, what happened is there was a reduction in accidents because you knew that your attention was being pulled. All right. Now we don't realize that. We think we're so expert on it that we mindlessly do it and accidents occur. There's a place in uh, Mexico or, uh, frequent where you come um, in the street where there's no stop sign, there's no traffic light, and there are no accidents because everybody is aware that they have to be there, right? So it's not the texting even, it's the, the thinking that I've mastered this so I can text and I can drive and I can do 12 other things at the same time. And so people need to be shown that they can't. And what about from a nutrition perspective? Do we have technology that's being helpful to promote healthy diets? You know, at Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives this year, we're having a presentation by uh, Mark Berman who's a physician internist, worked at the Robert uh, Wood Johnson Foundation looking at childhood obesity. And now he's in this tech space looking at all these Fitbit-like des designs. It's a huge industry and, you know, technology startups are everywhere. Will there be a device in the next five years that everyone must have to track how many calories they're taking in, how many calories they're burning? M I don't know if this will appeal to everybody. I'm one of these people who finds it very difficult to log in everything. 
on all of these internet-based programs. It doesn't help me. It sort of stresses me. On the other hand, if I do it for a few days, I'll realize how little I'm moving and how much I'm eating. I think we're in, I think we're in the early days. And I have a lot of faith in the 20, 30, and 40-year-old engineers working with psychologists to figure out a way that non-digital natives like me might have a device to help us and that the younger generation, my kids included, who are always wired, will just see it as part of life in the next century. I think we're really in the early days. And I think there's such a big market there that you know the competitive marketplace will refine those tools and they will be helpful. Right now, I think it's a little rocky and the, the jury's out. But I, I think it's part of our collective future in the area of stress and food in particular. I'll just jump in and say I think you know technology can be both like anything good and bad. Right. So you know on the sort of increasing stress side, you know I think what technology has changed is a lot of our expectations. So now everything can be done faster right. and right. sooner and quicker, and you should have hurry up and respond to someone because they sent you a message five minutes ago, and how come you haven't responded yet? And so actually, it's not the technology itself, but the expectations that have come up around the technology, you know, about what you should be able to do, how much more work you can now do, because you can take your work home with you, you can do it from anywhere, everything is in the cloud, in the right? You can do it in the car, you can do it wherever you are. And so I think one of the interesting things to think about from, again, what are the kinds of ways that we're gonna, you know, the systems we could put into place to help people with managing this, is to think about, again, either organizational, policy level, individual level systems that would maybe change some of those expectations. So I actually heard an NPR report not that long ago and they were interviewing the CEO of this company who decided that everybody was doing everything by email, no one talked to each other anymore. So he declared, I can't remember if it was a week, a month, or a day out of each week, where no one was allowed to communicate with each other by email. Mm -hmm. They actually had to go and talk to different people. They had to get up out of their desk, walk to someone else's office to actually talk to them. And it was a really interesting interview on sort of, you know, what his experience with that was. And I was thinking, what an interesting, you know, intervention. It's very little. It's not that hard. But it really forced people to kind of, you know, dial back some of the expectations for the speed of response and how quickly. And did they really need that piece of information right away or could it wait a little bit? So I, I think, you know, technology, as with anything, is, is both a benefit and then something that we have to also think about managing and we're in the very early stages of understanding sort of the, you know, the demands, again, the demands it imposes and trying to figure out the tools that we're going to bring right. to bear to manage those demands. Right. Can I share well, just... Well, with, unfortunately with that, we're going to have to wrap up our conversation, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so much for, um, for being here and sharing your expertise. Thank you to our studio audience. And this discussion will continue online at the forum website. You can also download HuffPost's stress relief app, um, GPS for the Soul. And yes, have a great day. Thank you. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.